and I think the balance that some people in the DA were starting to move was becoming was becoming toxic. Uh, when words start being said like, why are you focusing on those people? They don't vote for us. And why are you not focusing the money on the ratepayers? Uh, and of course, ratepayers, you know, takes on a very particular slot in terms of who you're referring to by way of the socioeconomic category mm. in a city like Johannesburg. So that kind of issues in the DA went down all the way down to Johannesburg, which created a very problematic environment. And I think in many ways, some of those people who wanted to change the direction in the DA nationally saw Herman Mashaba as a threat. Uh, and they were very much involved in the efforts of making it ungovernable for him within the DA. Hello, my name is Donald and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we're chatting with Michael Beaumont. Michael's the CEO of the People's Dialogue and the chairperson of Action Essay. He is the author of the book, The Accidental Mayor, Herman Mashaba and the Battle for Johannesburg, which is a very interesting read and take on the corruption within Johannesburg and the province in Gauteng as a whole. So I definitely recommend it to anyone. Michael, thank you so much for making the time to join us. Not at all. Thank you, Donald. It's great to talk about the book with you. So, Michael, can you give us an account of how corrupt Johannesburg was when Irma Mashaba took over? I mean, I've, I've heard of stories of corruption in South Africa, but those stories in the book are just shocking. Can you, can you tell our viewers some of those stories? Yeah, sure. And I mean, if you don't mind indulging me for a moment, Donald, because when you are campaigning, you, you campaign on opposition, on, on corruption. You think you understand corruption uh, but the reality is when you walk into government in a municipality that had been run by the ANC for over 20 years, uh, the point is we had no clue what we were walking into. The kind of depths and, and quantums of that corruption and just how systemic it was uh, really blew us away. You know, one of the first things that uh, Herman Mashaba did as mayor of Joburg within the first 100 days was to set up an anti-corruption unit in the city, the first of its kind. He appointed a former scorpion, uh, General Shadrach Sabir, to run that unit. And by the end of our term of office, it had racked up over 34 billion rands worth of cases under investigation. Uh, and when you just consider that that is one municipality in South Africa, uh, and you consider what that must be across the length and breadth of South Africa, it really is staggering. You know, to answer your question about the kind of cases you know, it varied. It varied from the multi-billion rand cases like the um, smart meters in the city of Johannesburg or the MTC broadband project, where you're talking about two or three billion rand projects for the city um, for which there was major problems, uh, right down to the smallest level. When I say smallest, we should never take any form of corruption as, 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 being, as being small. Uh, but, you know, down to the level of, you know, houses being sold illegally or old age home units being provided to unlawful beneficiaries for a few hundred rand. So it really was a staggering experience. Uh, but, you know, unlike so many things in, in local government where, you know, you deal with things that appear insurmountable, you know, fighting corruption really required the basics to be in place and the political will. And I think if there's one thing, and I'm sorry, Donald, I'm going on, but if there's one thing that we should take from that is that the fight against corruption can be won, but you need dedicated units that investigate these things. 
you need political leadership that lets those units do their work without political interference. And you need an institutional culture where people feel proud to be civil servants. And if we can get those three things right, I think there's a recipe that could work across South Africa. Yeah, Michael, back to the corruption. I, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the provincial government owed Johannesburg about 900 million rand. Yes, absolutely. And it's actually a common thing across, across South Africa, not just Johannesburg even, where the provincial government and national government obviously have lots of properties across these cities. Those properties attract rates, uh, electricity, water, and sewer charges like any other property, and they get accounts like any other property. But what had actually happened is when you have municipalities being run by the same political party that runs these other governments, there's obviously a kind of like buddy-buddy approach. So while the average resident is mercilessly cut off uh, for owing anything after the 30-day period, here you have provincial governments and national governments racking up hundreds of millions of bills uh, of unpaid money. And I think what really was of concern back then is if you go to those provincial and national government departments, they budget for that money. In those, in those budgets, they will have payments for rates and water and electricity, et cetera, to the municipalities for those properties. And obviously that raised the enormous question, which we couldn't answer in local government alone, but where does that money go if it's not going to the municipalities? Hello, everyone. If you're interested in advertising on Worldview, drop us an email at worldview.help at gmail.com. We will send you an advertisement guide, which will include the rates and the process involved. A typical shout out for your company or project will be between 45 and 60 seconds. By advertising on our platform, you'll be supporting a company that wants to improve the public narrative. Once again, send us an email at worldview.help at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description below. Now, back to the interview. And obviously it was stolen. Um, but M Michael, um, and, and there's a story of a forensic team that went to a so-called or a supposed corrupt company and they were confronted with people with AK-47s. Yeah, absolutely. There was an individual who was a very senior official in the city uh, who was believed to have been involved in wrongdoing. Uh, there was an investigation that took place and part of that investigation discovered that this individual owned a very upmarket kind of hotel uh, in a part of the world in KZN uh, where you know, immediately questions would be asked that if an individual is earning a certain amount per annum uh, as a salary, even a very well-paid senior official like that, the idea that they would be able to finance and buy and renovate a hotel and spend that kind of sums of money obviously kicked up questions. So the same forensic team uh, led by General Sabia himself uh, went to that location uh, and the story goes that they were approaching the building uh, and painters who were sitting on scaffolding uh, literally pulled out military automatic weapons. Uh, I, I don't recall which particular weapons, I'm not that clued in, uh, but essentially started to chase them and if they hadn't been able to cross the freeway and flag down a police car, uh, apparently they would have been in a great deal of trouble. Uh, it sounds like the stuff out of a mafia movie, uh, mm. but I'm afraid this is the state of politics in South Africa. And what I found very inspiring from your book is the fact that Herman Mashaba personally went with the police raids when they often confronted criminals. And it's sort of a very um, smart move from his side because 
he inspired a lot of confidence in the troops and the police because they had lost so, so much confidence. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting thing, actually. And I must tell you, uh, his uh, security detail were very unhappy about it. So they didn't think it was so smart. You know, but those are obviously people whose job it is to keep him alive. Uh, which I must tell you, given the way we were exposing corruption and giving the threat we were presenting to the former political establishment in Johannesburg, uh, they had a full-time job, I assure you. But yes, Herman did start leading those raids into abandoned buildings and being the first in the door and the last out and that kind of thing. And, you know, while it took a great deal of work to calm down his security detail, what it did do is generate a confidence within the Metro Police. You know, the Johannesburg Metro Police have a lot of very good men and women, uh, but they've never really had strong leadership. Uh, and when Herman Mashaba arrived in 2016, and he partnered up with David Tembe as the chief of police, suddenly you had a Metro Police that was being bolstered by strong leadership who was telling them to do what was right and not just what was politically expedient, who had their backs uh, when they were doing their job and who ensured there were consequences for those who gave everyone else a bad name. Uh, and little things like uh, being first in the door and making sure that every time a, a Metro police officer was injured or killed on duty, they were by their side or by their family's side. You know, the confidence within the JMPD really started to increase. And this is an important question for South Africa, Donald, because our policing in South Africa is a major problem. With what we spend on policing and for what it achieves, it's a disaster. And one of the reasons, one of the biggest reasons that we could see from the experience in Johannesburg is that if political leadership gets behind law enforcement, it resources them, it equips them, it tells them that you investigate every single person you need to without fear or favor or without political consequence, you can start to move to a situation where your police are effective and they have the support they need to do their job. Mm, definitely. And Michael, there's also a story, and this is sort of indicative of the ANC's attitude towards um, South Africans as a whole, a story of a woman that did not have a toilet in her home, and she had to make alternative plans. Can you, can you tell us that story? Yeah, it was, it was actually in the run-up to 2016 election, uh, where Herman was just the mayoral candidate back then before he was the mayor. Uh, and as part of a campaign, obviously, you go to all these different communities and you get an important eye uh, for the issues and the people and, and the vote winning exercise. I think what was unique about Herman, and I say this with absolute confidence, is that he didn't just see this as campaigning and winning votes and then, you know, to hell with it when you're in government. Those stories stuck with him. Uh, they haunted him, in fact. Um, and, you know, the particular story you refer to, he was in Alexandra. Uh, and the, the conditions in Alexandria, we know about the overcrowding and the sanitation and the deplorable conditions. But essentially, we had this dynamic where you could, uh, where he walked up to a shack in the informal settlement with a delegation of people in his campaign. And he found a lady there who, you now Herman describes, you know, in a different life would have been a place in the most powerful boardroom. She had a presence about her. Uh, and when he went there, he, he noticed that there were no ablution facilities in her shack or anywhere nearby. And he asked her the question, how, how, do you, how do you survive like this? How do you manage like this? And what she actually said to him is that she had trained her body to only require the bathroom when she was at her place of work. And, you know, to this day, that's a story that has haunted Herman. But I could say that with absolute confidence for the three-year term and where he was the mayor of Joburg, that story followed him and every effort he made in respect of providing these facilities to people in Johannesburg was inspired by, you know, the pain 
that those kind of stories brought about. And there was a point where he told this story to a group of ANC councillors and they laughed at him. In fact, it was a state of the city address. I mean, it couldn't even be said to be an informal occasion. Uh, but he, he made it, it was part of a formal speech, I think it was in 2017 at the State of the City Address, which is a very formal occasion attended by all the media and dignitaries and foreign diplomats. Uh, you, it's the kind of pomp and ceremony that happens in, in South African government when you have a State of the Nation Address, but obviously at a smaller level. Uh, and um, in that speech, he, he said he told that story. And he told that story with the belief that it would be a unifying factor where all parties could understand why this has to be a priority of our budget going forward. And the ANC uh, caucus of 121 councillors at the time burst out laughing. Uh, and it was an incredible experience because you would like to have worked on the assumption that all parties would find that deplorable. But here you have the party responsible for that very situation, uh, finding it amusing. And I think that stuck with us as well. Yeah, that's a great. If, if you don't even consider the problem, how do you solve it? I mean, that's just frightening. But uh, Michael, so let's move on to the Democratic Alliance because obviously Omar Mashaba was a mayor for the Democratic Alliance in uh, Johannesburg. What went wrong with Omar Mashaba and your relationship with the Democratic Alliance? Well, just by way of the background there, uh, Donald, I, I was a member of the DA for a very long time, going back to 2007. I uh, had run the provinces of KZN and Gauteng all the way until 2016. And obviously my experience with the DA went back quite a long way and I obviously had a particular perspective on what had changed. But going into the city after 2016, it was a high time for the DA. Uh, if you think about it, the DA was winning metros, it was winning more support from the ANC than ever before, the party was diversifying. People were excited about the DA for the first time really. Uh, in 2016, and it had so much going for it. Uh, and I think particularly from our perspective back then, you know, I'd been in opposition for nine years uh, when we went into Joburg, and suddenly my eyes were open to this fact, which is you can do more in one day in government than you can do in nine years in opposition. Because when you bring down the role of the opposition to its core, it's, it's about talking, and, and government is about doing. And the problems of South Africa need more doing. So, you know, we had this incredible opportunity. Uh, and really what took place in the DA was a shift between 2016 and 2019 and beyond, which, you know, even to this day, I battle to understand fully. But basically what that shift started to do was question the very project that had succeeded in 2016, uh, that wanted to try and take the party back to being more of a suburban party, uh, more towards its traditional base, uh, et cetera. Uh, and that project increasingly became more challenging uh, in the context of government, because here you have a city like Johannesburg where you've got vast problems, enormous problems. I mean, the toilet story I was talking about now is just one service delivery area that you can talk about across electricity and water and roads and housing and, and all these areas. And you obviously have more demands of your budget than you have the ability to meet with your budget. So you have to come up with a program of action. And Herman Mashaba's project was very much orientated to say, we need to be a pro-poor city. Uh, and we need to make sure that we address some of these startling inequalities in Johannesburg, which are sometimes far worse than anywhere else in the country. Even. Um, so, you know, this was the nature of his project. And immediately he started to invest enormous sums of money in addressing the electrical and roads and water infrastructure on one hand, 
But on the other hand, ensuring that more was being done by way of social justice issues relating to housing and electrification of informal settlements and um, the extension of clinic hours and drug rehabilitation facilities in so many, many areas. And I'm afraid the DA at the time, because of the tensions it was going through, took a bit of an approach of saying, you know, why aren't you doing more for our residents? We want you to be cutting grass more and we want you to be dealing with these kind of bread and butter issues of local government more, which, you know, was well and good, but I think it became reductionist in thinking to say it's one or the other. You know, when you're running a 65 billion rand city, it, it shouldn't be one or the other, it should be both and, but it's about the balance that you strike in that process. Uh, and I think the balance that some people in the DA were starting to move was becoming was becoming toxic. Uh, when words start being said like, why are you focusing on those people? They don't vote for us. And why are you not focusing the money on the ratepayers? Uh, and of course, ratepayers, you know, takes on a very particular slot in terms of who you're referring to by way of the socioeconomic category mm. in a city like Johannesburg. So that kind of issues in the DA went down all the way down to Johannesburg, which created a very problematic environment. And I think in many ways, some of those people who wanted to change the direction in the DA national saw Herman Mashaba as a threat. Uh, and they were very much involved in the efforts of making it ungovernable for him within the DA. And I watched very quickly as that relationship began to deteriorate uh, and how more and more people within the DA aligned to that group were trying to go after Herman Mashaba. Uh, and down to the point where motions of no confidence coming from the ANC we're likely to be supported by some of these individuals. And if you think I'm being far-fetched when I say this, uh, when Herman Mashaba's successor was meant to be elected, a group of DA councillors voted for the ANC person who became the mayor over their own candidate. And really, Donald, I'm sorry to bring a, a long answer down to this, but it, it, it came down to this issue of whether the DA was going to be a party of government, which had to be brave and bold and deal with complexities of coalition government, or whether it was going to be a party of opposition. And some people, and certainly a group of people in the DA that seem to have gained sway ever since, seem to be moving in this direction of the DA becoming a party of opposition because it's easier, it's less complex, you don't have messy coalitions, and its DNA has always been orientated around that. Mm. Uh, it's been institutionalized in that way of thinking. Um, and for us, that was the ultimate betrayal because you know, what better way to win over the support of new people to your party than to do what other governments never did before. And as a final thought on that, Donald, I'll, I'll leave you with, you know, a project that Herman Mashaba ran that electrified Cliptown, the home of the Freedom Charter. Herman Mashaba electrified that in 2018, I think it was. Uh, no ANC government had done that uh, in democratic South Africa. And those are the kind of things you can do when you're in government uh, and that you can do and win people over in the process which you simply just can't do in opposition. Hmm. And, okay, so are you perhaps, is Action Essay perhaps, attributing too much of this to the, the wrong direction that Democratic Alliance is going towards to Ellen Ziller, right? Aren't you perhaps blaming her too much for everything that is wrong with the party? Because I, I've recently read an article in preparation for this interview where she responded to your book, the, the allegations you made in your book. And she said she was just the premier in the Western Cape and that she didn't really have any real influence within the Democratic Alliance. But what would you say to that? Well, I think it's laughable and I, I, I must be honest with you. I find uh, Helen Ziller increasingly becoming more and more dishonest 
uh, in the way in which she engages in, in, in politics. Because, you know, the notion that Helen was some powerless individual without influence or, or agency in the organization, it holds no sway. And if there's any evidence to be provided from that, how many months later was she elected to arguably the most senior or second most senior position in the party as the chairperson of the federal council? Uh, so the notion that she you know, didn't have any agency in that short intervening period is, is absurd. But, you know, you raise an important point because uh, the reality is Helen Zilla didn't elect herself uh, into that position. Uh, it was done by a group of people who formed a majority. Uh, and essentially, you know, I think in many cases, it represents a change of direction uh, in the DA. It's not about people. Uh, people come and people go. Uh, what it really has to be about is the direction in which an organization is moving. Uh, and I think what the book suggests is that she played a key role in moving the DA into the direction which it has moved uh, and which it has started to experience a, a very fundamental decline. Do you think the leadership of the Democratic Alliance, they are aware of this grass-cutting attitude at a municipal level? Are, do they, are they aware of this and do they drive this? Because, for example, I know Ellen Ziller, she was one of the, uh, to a certain degree, she has there's a, a lot of similarities between her and Omar Mashaba in her, in their approach when, uh, I mean, when Ellen Ziller was the mayor of Cape Town in terms of going towards Kayamandi, going to the townships, trying to gain those voters. So it, it seems strange to me that she would be a person of, we need to focus on grass cutting rather than focusing on delivering services to the poor. Are they aware of the stance of yeah. councillors at a local level? I think they certainly are, Donald. And I think the interesting thing is the shift that you're referring to definitely has taken place, not just in the DA as an organization, but even in the leadership, because what you're referring to from going back to 2006 is probably very much correct. Uh, but the reality was after 2016 and certainly after 2019, the DA underwent the shift to start talking about going back to its traditional base. And there was this fundamental overreaction uh, for this loss of votes to the Freedom Front uh, in 2019, um, which, you know, that reaction was, was self-serving because it was that reaction that caused this frenzy in the organization that required an accountability, that required a leader to go and paved the way for a new leadership group to come in in the DA. Uh, but essentially that thinking of going back to our, our roots, our, our heritage as a suburban party, our so-called traditional base, um, didn't just exist within the caucus of the town, it existed with this group of individuals who subsequently have moved the DA in that direction. Uh, they've done so uh, and tried to position the DA so it's, it's, it's you know, someone once made the joke of calling it the Freedom Front Minus, uh, which I think is, is not, a, not an inaccurate description. But they're trying to appeal to all those people that they've lost. But I think the biggest failure about their project is, is in going after that group of people, they're losing far more. Uh, because, you know, if you look at this last election, in places like Soweto, the DA went from 11% to 3%. Um, and, you know, when you consider that kind of electoral loss, as well as, you know, even in suburban areas where people want to see a DA that was becoming more diverse and more challenging of the ANC, I would venture that, you know, that move has not been a very strategic one at all. But I mean, isn't it mostly the influence of your party that's driving the loss of the DA, that you're doing so well, it's not a case of them doing badly, you're doing so well. You know, Donald, I wish, I wish we could take all the credit. I wish I could uh, pat myself on the back in this interview and tell you that, yes, it's all us. But, you know, I'll give you an example. I worked at a voting station on election day. 
Uh, I ran our national campaign from that voting station because I like to be, you know, interfacing and getting the mood of what it's like on the ground. Uh, and in that suburban DA ward that would have been true blue DA for forever in town, I saw voters coming to the polls who weren't, you know, they weren't aware enough about Action SA yet because of our relative youth, but they were actually in physical discomfort. They did not know what they were going to do with their vote right up until they walked in the gate. Uh, and I think that's just a, a reality where people are not voting and those who are voting are, are, are going through that process with a great deal of discomfort because, you know, they feel like the political institutions in South Africa have failed them. And those inst institutions include the DA. You know, I remember at one time when I was in the DA a long time ago, the most sought after stories by that so-called suburban traditional DA voting base wasn't the you know, big stories of what we were doing to fight rates increases and the other kind of issues that would be their bread and butter. It was actually the stories about how the DA was growing in townships uh, and becoming a more diverse party because you know everyone understood that's what the DA had to go through in order to become the party that could challenge the ANC. And I think it's actually been the betrayal of that project and the alienation of that project in the eyes of so many people uh, where we contest and where we didn't, as a matter of fact. Uh, because the DA's declines took place outside of the municipalities that Action SA contested, uh, that has resulted in their declines and a lot of people feeling left behind. Michael, is it is it mostly this change in attitude of the Democratic Alliance that's driving many former DA members to join your party? Or is there some sort of relationship problems as well with the leadership of the Democratic Alliance? Or is it both? You know, it's obviously difficult to say, um, and I, I would say it's both, uh, to be fair, uh, because a lot of people who are joining us are talking about the direction in which the DA has moved, um, and they are talking about that direction as they, they they never signed up for that. You know, people are using that kind of phrase. That's not the DA that I joined. I joined a DA that promised that we're heading in that direction, and now they've done a 180, and that's not for me. Uh, and a lot of people have said that, but you know the, the the leadership issues definitely are in play because it would be it would be inaccurate to answer that question without saying that there has been a degree to which certain people have been pressurized or victimized or or, or you know how disciplinary institutions in the DA have been used to settle scores. Uh, certainly, that's the impression we get from a lot of people, uh, and you often hear the DA saying, "Oh, they're leaving because there was a disciplinary against them." But the DA never brought those cases to finality. They never produced findings. Uh, and, you know, I think in many ways they wanted to be able to hold that over people's heads while they were in the party and definitely when they left. Interesting. Okay, so let's move over to policies, the policies of Action Essay. One very interesting one that I read on your on your website is the, the idea of electoral reform. Can you expand on us for us the idea of electoral reform? What would we change in terms of our elections in South Africa? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think one of the biggest problems, and I don't think I'm, I'm being far-fetched when I say this, uh, in South African politics is that we don't say who represents us. If you think about it, you vote for a political party and they decide who they're going to give you as a candidate. And the consequence of that is they give you the person that suits them to give you. And the way politics works internally for many parties is they're not looking for, you know, who's going to serve these residents the best, who's got the most experience. They're looking at you know, who backed me in the last election and who's got my back in the next one. And that's why in many ways, the public representatives that South Africans witness and what they will see in parliament and places like that are a race to the bottom, really, quite frankly. 
what we believe is a situation of direct election. We really think that voters should say, I'm voting for so-and-so as my member of parliament, my premier, my mayor, my councillor, my whatever. And the reason why we think that's so important is at the end of the day, it will force parties to put up a much higher caliber of candidates, because actually voters will now be evaluating and say, you know, I might not like that party, but geez, this candidate has done well in the past. They've, they've served my community well. Uh, so it increases the bar a little bit uh, by way of, of contestation. But also there has to be a more direct connection between public representative and accountability. And public representatives need to be in operating in a space where if they vote to defend a motion of no confidence against, let's say, Jacob Zuma on the seventh trial, voters should know that that's what their MP did with their vote. So that there is that mechanism of accountability and a voter can say, you've lost my vote because of how you've done that. Um, so people would potentially even vote less along a party line, more along community lines, uh, when it comes to those kind of considerations in the future. And we think that has to be the way forward. So would you be in favor of a sort, a sort of a first-past-the-post system? I think it would need to be a hybrid uh, for what it's worth because you, you can't deny South Africa's history. South Africa's political history does require us to have minority representation. And uh, by minority, I talk about minority political views, uh, whatever that may be, because uh, there are a plethora of parties that represent niches of communities in parliament uh, that have a legitimate cons constituency and deserve representation. But I think a hybrid model where you would take, you know, a proportion of the seats of parliament and say half, and then another half for, for a proportional representation list would ensure that you get that kind of balance struck in the future. Uh, I think a pure first past the post system in a South African context may be a bit challenging because what it would essentially do is disenfranchise all those votes in a 49, 51% kind of result uh, where the 49% would feel underrepresented and I think with South Africa's relative fledgling status as a new democracy, uh, that probably wouldn't be as politically beneficial or, 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 or constructive as it might be in a context of the most established democracies. Mm. And uh, you, you raised a very interesting notion in your book that you don't really see the point of provincial governments. And you might be in favor of abolishing them altogether and sending all those powers to a municipal level. Can, can you tell us your reasoning behind that? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to be clear, you know, we're going through a very extensive policy process at the moment where we're going to have to grapple with these kind of things. As a party that was born at a time of local government, we've got to develop a national policy suite where we grapple with these and other issues. But certainly a lot of the thinking at this stage is when you look at the role of provincial government, uh, it really, you know, doesn't make a great deal of sense. I mean, its functionality is primarily along the lines of health uh, and education. And everything else is a shared competency with national or local government. And when you consider the realities of South African government, which is just so laden with cater deployment and creating departments and structures and positions, not for the benefit of people, but for becoming employment agencies of a political factions within, within the ANC, uh, the reality is provincial government, billions and billions and billions are spent on sustaining it. And all around the world, the best practice model is to devolve as much as you can to local authorities. And in many cases, what you have, just by way of an example, um, is a provincial government department for housing, let's say, that has budget of a few billion rand. And really, they are contracting municipalities with their money to do that work. 
Now, if those funds went straight into the municipalities, you would cut out all of those departments, all of those people, all of those salaries and wages and structures and all those things that collectively, I would venture probably add up to hundreds of billions at a provincial government level. And I think in the South African context, we need to start having some difficult conversations about how we reduce the cost of government um, and try and increase the proportion of money that goes towards improving people's lives. Yeah, I think that's a great idea because I've never really understood. I mean, you've, you have sort of quasi ministers at, at a municipal level at, in Johannesburg. So why can't they just do the job anyway? Why do you need a provincial government anyway if you have these ministers at local level? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the best practice around the world. So around the world, increasingly, there is a recognition that the government spheres that are closest as the interface to communities and people are the ones best positioned to roll out services of all of these kinds, including health and education. Uh, and I think there's just so much that we can learn as a country in that process. And although these things might not happen quickly, you know, there are things that we must look at uh, because we, we cannot afford as a country to have bloated structures of government that purely exist because they exist. Uh, we've got to ask ourselves what is producing a direct return. And I mean, you, you can't get any less of a return on investment in our country than you do on, on education. I mean, we're among the highest spenders in the world on education with one of the poorest results in the world. Uh, and that's got to ask big questions about how we're rolling it out. Michael, won't you receive massive blowback if you were to pursue this, if you were to um, abolish provincial governments? I, I, I'd assume that's a lot of jobs that you'd be laying off and the unions won't be happy about that. Well, I think the bottom line is it's a policy position that we have to debate and discuss. And I think these things never happen suddenly and they can't happen suddenly. And let's remember what you're talking about would be potentially a change to the constitution. Uh, which would require, you know, two-thirds majority. Uh, and as much as I would like to say that Action SA would secure that in 2024, the reality is you'd have to have a two-thirds of parliament made up of a number of political parties to adopt that view. So I would venture that that's probably a long way out still. But, you know, at least if we have parties starting to ask these questions and engaging on the discussion, uh, that's a positive in and of itself because... You know, even in the interim period, we should start to ask what does the ideal provincial government structure look like in a minimalistic sense? Mm. And I mean, it's a great answer to the problem that many people see here in the Western Cape. There's a growing movement, Cape for Cape secession, Cape independence. And the reasoning behind this movement is they don't see a future for South Africa. They see it's too, there's too, too many systemic problems. And this answer of abolishing provincial government, sending more power to a local level is the answer to what these people are looking for because they, they want some systemic structural changes. You know, Donald, I mean, if, if the discussion is about devolving authority to local government and, and local, local spheres of government to be more effective, that would be well and good. But certainly what I do understand about that debate is genuinely people who think the Western Cape should become a separate country. Uh, and that's something that uh, I think we would be very strongly against. I personally stand against that. Uh, and I do not think now is the time for South Africans to start talking about, you know, taking, you know, corners of the country and, and separating it off. We have very challenging problems in our country that we need to work on resolving. And that requires everyone in our country being involved in that process. Uh, but the Western Cape is very much part of our country. It needs to remain part of our country. And it has a lot to contribute 
in the process of fixing South Africa. And that's a project that everyone needs to be involved in because you can't regard a province to be a place where people can just go and pretend like the rest of the country doesn't exist. Uh, the problems in this country affect everyone in this country, and that's why it needs to be a collective thing to work on it. And I, I understand your position. I'm just um, trying to explain their reasoning. They're looking for big changes, and the great thing is your advocate, you're trying to find those big changes. And that's perhaps why they would they not see Cape Independence, they would vote for your party, because you're offering those solutions. Now, if we're going to be talking about a system of directly electing people, and if we're talking about a system of increasing the effectiveness of local government, then you know those are principles that we stand for. But in our view, it must always be within the framework of a unified South Africa. Okay, so another issue, race-based policies. Can you perhaps explain your party's position on, for example, things like BE and race-based policies in general? Absolutely. So, I mean, Donald, I think the most important precursor to this conversation, uh, and I mentioned a bit earlier, is that we were obviously a creature born of local government. We have a local government manifesto. Uh, we've emerged from 2021, and we've recognized that building our national policy suite is a big priority for us. And we have specifically said that our policy suite needs to be brave and bold, and it needs to come up with hardcore alternatives. So part of which is to say these things are under construction. But the things that we certainly can comment on in the meantime is to say that these policies haven't worked. They fundamentally have not. And I don't think there's any South African who believes that. And I really think there's been a terrible sleight of hand performed by the ANC in this process, where the idea of being against BEE or affirmative action as they are currently constructed is regarded to be anti-transformation. But actually, if you look at some of the strongest critics of these policies, it is black South Africans who are qualified and possess the, the means to be able to tender for work and to contribute economically, but they're being locked out because the system is actually not about transformation of previously disadvantaged people. It's become about transformation for politically connected people over and over again. And, you know, I think to be fair, this part of the commentary is, it, it's, it's common cause. I think a lot of people say these things, what I'm saying isn't, you know, going to be groundbreaking. I think from an Action SA point of view, we want to develop the next part of this answer. Uh, and that's the part that we want to be groundbreaking. So then what replaces it? Because what does differentiate us from a party like the DA, for example, is we do, we, we do not believe that you can just say that race doesn't exist and we must just carry on uh, with poverty as a proxy and all these things. Uh, the reality is we have a history in South Africa that has been fundamentally driven to create racial inequality. Uh, denying the fact that that has happened for hundreds of years is bizarre. And denying the fact that it's been exacerbated over the last 28 years would be absolutely bizarre. The question is, how do we deal with these things? And I think when you start to understand these things more in terms of their process of transformation, we can start to take this conversation down to the level of creating economic opportunity and embracing this idea that there is no transformation and there is no empowerment better than increasing employment and access to employment. Because a job in South African context will do more than government has ever done. And we can find ourselves in a space where we're investing in education, we're investing in universities, we're investing in access to university and skills and colleges, and doing that at massive scales and focusing that work in areas which have been historically oppressed by racial policies. And that program leads towards access to opportunity and not political patronage.
Now, I know the Democratic Alliance would perhaps argue that um, if we just change BE's focus from black people to poor people, you will benefit. It, it will benefit mostly black people anyway, because most poor people are black. So, what would you say to that? Just change the focus from predominantly black people to just poor people, and you'll help them anyway. I think the reality is trying to fix a broken policy by tweaking it and twisting it is probably no different to taking a car that has fundamentally uh, and from an engineering sense of view collapsed and trying to you know, tap on it here and tap on it there and hope that the engine starts up again. I think the reality is that these policies have failed and their failure is systemic. Their failures are not such that you can just twist this thing in the regulations in the background and somehow it's going to solve the problem. I think there has to be a fundamental rethink of transformation in South Africa and what transformation was meant to be and what policies like BEE have done to alienate that principle. Because when you take transformation back to the principle of what was meant to be achieved, I think that policies like BEE have become, have, have, have replaced transformation and they've done a very poor job in doing it. And we need to go back to the original principle and develop policies that are going to target the actual principles of transformation. Michael, how would you describe your party? A, a conservative party, a social democrat party, a liberal party? What what label, if, if you want to, a short elevator pitch to a potential voter, how would you quickly frame it? Well, you know, I always avoid those kind of labels and elevator pitches to voters because it's actually only people like you and me and commentators who use these things. Voters actually, I don't think, their eyes glaze over when they hear this kind of talk. But I think we're an interesting hybrid for what it's worth. I mean, we're absolutely liberal in the sense that we are constitutionalists, we believe in individuals, uh, we believe in the rights and these things being of, of supreme importance in our country. Uh, there are people who would label us as conservative from an economic and from an immigration point of view. Uh, and on both of those, we, we're happy to own that title because we do actually espouse strong free market principles that we are unapologetic about. We do not, we, we, we despise the socialistic direction of South Africa and what it has done to our country. And we are unapologetic about immigration. Um, the reality is our country has laws and those laws must be implemented. One of those laws is the Immigration Act. And like every other country in the world, it says you have a border and you have the right to determine what goods and people may pass through your borders. And, you know, it's bizarre that, you know, if you advocate for that position of the rule of law, you're deemed to be a conservative in that regard. But if that's what we're going to be, then, that, then so be it. But at the same standpoint, you know, we are without doubt, um, social justice warriors from our perspective, we certainly believe that the wrongs of South Africa have to be fixed, that we can never achieve the prosperous society that South Africa is meant to become if we're just going to bandage over the wounds of our past in all the different forms that those wounds were inflicted on the people and psyche of our country. So I guess uh, whether you call that a mongrel or whether you call that a hybrid, uh, I would suggest we encompass a number of those principles and this must have been a very tall elevator ride, I'm sorry. Um, so is, is there any other policies that you might be, perhaps be excited about or we didn't discuss that you feel is another core feature of Action Essay? Yeah, look, I mean, obviously, I've got to speak to it from a very broad sense. Um, but, you know, maybe just to talk about our policy process, because we have these core values, in which we've dealt with a number of them already. But one of the things we learned through the people's dialogue is politicians don't have all the answers. Uh, and I think that's, that's stating the obvious. In fact, politicians have the least of the answers in many instances. So we're going to be going through a public policy process that we are going to facilitate, but we're actually going to bring experts around the table. 
because what we found is when you bring a retired police general and a retired judge and a prosecutor and the head of a corruption unit and all these people around the table and say, guys, how do we fix criminal justice? They're not going to quote uh, whether you're a liberal or a social democrat or whatever. They're going to talk practical things. So we need more police. We need better resource detectives. We need more courts. And they're going to talk about these things. And this is where we want to start playing as a space because we want to produce practical solutions to South Africa's problems. We don't want to be ideological in nature. There's a role for ideology without any question. But actually, South Africa's problem needs real solutions. And we want to play in that space very much. And I think from our point of view, it's got to be about the economy. I think we're going to take a very interesting position in terms of the rural economy. I think South African policy has forgotten about these rural areas. They just want to talk about the metros. Uh, well and good. And urbanization is undoubtedly a trend. But it is also a trend because we are failing in terms of a rural economy. And I think a lot more needs to be done in that regard. Uh, education is going to be an absolute cornerstone for us. There has to be a fundamental overhaul and revamp of our education system and of our entire criminal justice network. And I think those are going to be the areas that we're going to press on above all else in our policy process. How will you prevent in these public formats from, for example, hooligans taking over or suggesting stupid ideas or um, the ANC perhaps infiltrating them? I know the we know the ANC does this with um, organizations like COPE and Fees Must Fall. How do you prevent um, the wrong people from getting inside? Well, I can tell you, we, we're already being infiltrated left, right, and center uh, by people in all sorts of parties. Uh, and that's the reality. When you win large swathes of support from long-established political parties, you know, that's the consequence of which you have to deal with. Um, and we are dealing with it, and we have our systems in place. Um, I think the reality, though, is you've got to watch these processes, and you've got to construct them very carefully. We're a new party. Uh, we're building institutions, but we must always be very mindful that every time we're doing things, we're doing things for the first time at the moment as a new party. So you've got to watch out for these kind of risks. You've got to structure things the right kind of way. Uh, but as much as we are attracting people who are new to politics, both in our leadership team and across the board, we also have a number of people in our leadership team who have a lot of experience, who've seen these things happen before, and who are going to bring that experience to bear. Uh, when we construct these processes to avoid exactly the kind of pitfalls that you're referring to. Was one of those pitfalls Dr. Makosi Koza? Certainly, the relationship with Dr. Koza was a very difficult one, as it turned out. Um, and I, I say that with, with no glee, Donald. I think Dr. Koza has contributed massively to South African politics. Um, I think what she has done for South Africa has been immense. Um, but certainly that relationship didn't work out very well. Uh, and, um, you know, from our perspective, one of the things that we take throughout that process is that we dealt with that issue very decisively, from being initiated in the middle of January to being concluded in the middle of March. I would suggest to you that as a new political party, we outperformed long-established parties. It would take years not to deal with that kind of situation. Uh, so from our point of view, we regard that to be a good testing of our disciplinary processes that prove to withhandle the pressure. One of your is one of your attempts to fight infiltration. Um, the fact that you don't have a deputy president of Action ESO. No, I wouldn't say that is specifically uh, an issue, and I don't think there would be any view towards a deputy presidency uh, creating that kind of risk. Um, for what it's worth, uh, the argument goes both ways. Uh, you know, it's great to have a strong and diverse leadership team, uh, and if you have a deputy president who can have a big public profile 
that can add, can be in a different part of the country to your party president. You know, these are positives and they, they have their virtues. Obviously, the, the internal politicking of a political party that's created with deputies uh, and their expectations of succession and that kind of thing is a long-established issue uh, in South African politics. So there are definitely downsides of that as well. Uh, but these are all things that we're going to have to consider in the ongoing development of our constitution. Our constitution has gone through a few iterations already. Uh, and no doubt when we go to our first elective conference, these kind of things will have to be aired and ventilated by a whole lot more people than just me. As CEO of the, the People's Dialogue, how prominent was the issue of illegal immigration? Because it feels to me, by political analysts and politicians in general, that issue is very underrated. And there's a, a bigger favor out there to address that issue that's often commented on. So did you feel, do you feel that the issue of illegal immigration is a much bigger issue in South Africa than the, the experts would let us believe? Absolutely. In fact, you know, Donald, I'll take us back to the book to tell a story from the book, if you don't mind, because this is actually how it all began. So on the 1st of December 2016, Herman Mashaba had an event for his 100 days in office where he reported back to the people of Joburg as to what had been achieved. And a big part of that was about the inner city. And we know the inner city's issues of illegal immigration are quite profound. Uh, and it wasn't even in the speech. It was a rather mundane question after the speech, which was posed by a journalist. Uh, and Herman Mashaba answered in such a way where he said, illegal immigrants have broken our laws. In other words, the question was, are, are, are illegal immigrants criminals? And you know, Herman Mashaba answered to the extent of saying that, well, <laughs> the word illegal is your, is your clue. They have broken our laws. Um, and there was a huge hoo-ha that took place for, I reckon, about a week. And up until that point in South African politics, any political leader who raised that issue very quickly got hammered and a day or two later walked it backwards. You know, the usual political apology, you know, I'm sorry if my words may have offended someone, you know, they were taken out of context, you know, the usual. Uh, but, but Herman Mashaba, not being a politician, uh, turned around and said, sorry, guys, but this is the truth. This is a very serious issue and it needs a voice in South Africa. And I mean, for a week, we went through hell. And I can tell you from someone who'd, who'd been in politics as a career politician all my time, you know, we, we thought we were losing that battle because of how the commentariat and talk show and everyone's just hitting us day after day. But something very interesting happened about a week later. And that's that the ordinary man in the street was stopping Herman Mashaba saying, thank you. Finally, someone is standing up for this issue. And in many ways, that has been the public response. And in fact, the reality for many people and organizations who talk about illegal immigration now and do so politically for benefit, they do so arising from you know, Herman Mashaba's bravery to consult, to confront that issue. Uh, because there is a group of people in South Africa who are aggressive. If you raise those issues, you're a xenophobe. But you know, the reality the world over is that if you walk into most um, countries in the world that are successful and have a rule of law, and you do so without paperwork and without permission, you're not gonna be treated very well at all. Uh, and as a country, we, we need to not deal with our law selectively. There is an Immigration Act, and we cannot adopt the position that our focus about immigration should be to talk about how we ignore the law. I think that was an interesting experience from that time. But Michael, how do you walk this fine line of not encouraging vigilantism, people taking the law into their own hands and trying to force illegal immigrants out of the country? You know, it is a fine line. It's, it's a tightrope, actually. Um, and it's something we deal with all the time because, 
you know, we communicate on this issue, you know, almost every other day to affirm the following position. And that is to say, we want people to come to South Africa. For South Africa to be a successful country, people must come here to visit, to holiday, to work. We want that. But people must come through our borders legally. And when they are here, they must obey our laws. And that is how we crystallize our position on immigration down to the most fundamental essence, which is all about the rule of law. And we adopt many kind of uh, positions on the subject to affirm that, including, by the way, that there are a lot of people in this country who are entitled to papers, who don't have those papers because home affairs is ineffective in doing its job. And those people deal with terrible situations where they're abused by law enforcement and landlords and everybody else because they have no recourse. So there's many issues like that that we speak to, um, and including, by the way, speaking publicly against outbreaks of xenophobia and xenophobic violence, uh, which we do on a regular basis. But we continue to operate what we regard to be as the reasonable middle ground in this process, which says that we are a party of the rule of law. There is this law. It's a law that is for every country in the world. It's not just for South Africa, and it must be implemented. Uh, and the people on one side of us who says that makes us xenophobic and other people on the other side who, who want to take the law into their own hands, to us, those are the extremes, and we will continue to operate that middle ground. Would you like to build a wall, and is Zimbabwe going to pay for it? <laughs> yeah, I think any wall that Zimbabwe can pay is not going to be a very effective <laughs> Uh, but no, I don't think walls are regarded to be effective solutions anywhere the world over. Uh, but having said that, there's no question we've got to look towards solutions. We have a huge amount of border. Um, we have we rely very much on natural borders, um, like rivers, etc., in our country. But we do need to find intelligent ways of managing our borders. Uh, and I think one of the great things about being where we are as a country is the world over is filled with examples of countries that were where we are now and who did things and that succeeded and that they have improved. And we can learn from all of those countries in exactly this kind of question. Yeah, Michael, I see our time is running out. I want to thank you so much for making time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. My last question before I conclude, what is your predictions for 2024? What do you see the predictions for Action Essay and for the ANC? Well, I think the first thing, Donald, we in an interesting political time in the sense that people who know what they're doing are not making projections anymore uh, because the, the politics is just so unstable. Um, and we saw this even in 2021 and since then. But certainly, I think at a very broad level, the ANC is already under 50% in this last election. And I think they will remain far under 50% in 2024. Uh, the real question, uh, which I think has to seize us, is whether or not there can be a body of political parties that can be unified in the principle of South Africa needing to remove the ANC at a first level and achieve change that is positive for South Africans at a second level, that can work together to implement that on the back of a 2024 election result. Because if we're all very honest with ourselves, the reality is that there's no single political party that can remove the ANC and replace it. That's not the reality. And in fact, there's a wonderful analogy about uh, the wild dogs taking down the buffalo, uh, which is an appropriate analogy because anyone who's ever seen wild dogs hunting, it's messy. It's not a, not a pretty spectacle at all. Uh, but neither is the opposition space in South Africa. But each one of those wild dogs in this metaphor um, is a political party and has a role to play. They have a constituency. And collectively, they have a task, which is to remove the ANC. 
And I think there needs to be much more conversation amongst like-minded political parties about how we can operate in that space, how we can reduce the extent to which we contest one another and focus our important work on creating a viable alternative that inspires. The only way a 2024 outcome is going to achieve change for South Africans, Donald, is if we inspire the millions and millions of people, in fact, 56% of people, I think, in this last election who were registered and didn't vote, and the millions more who aren't registered and not voting. And the only thing that's going to inspire those people and activate is a belief that there's a viable prospect of removing the ANC. And I think that's the conversation that has to take place. Absolutely. And yeah, it's it's so inspiring to see Action SA taking a leadership role in these conversations. And thank you so much, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. To our viewers, you certainly enjoyed this content. Please consider liking this video, sharing as widely as possible, and subscribing to our channel. My name is Donald, and you've been watching Worldview. Mm -hmm.